1: from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, and I'm Sean McCraney, your host. If you have family or friends who can't watch the show on television, have them tune in, or go to www.hotm.tv, and uh, they can watch streaming video from anywhere in the world live. You can also get to our archive shows, almost 150 of them, from the same website. After. Seventy-five weeks of meeting together. We are concluding our study of Matthew this Sunday at uh, Calvary Campus. Join us next year beginning January 4th as we begin the Book of John, the Gospel of John. Uh, We meet Sunday mornings at the U of U and Sunday evenings at Utah State and at Weber State. Go to www.calvarycampus.com for more information. We're going to hold our winter open water baptisms coming in January, January 23rd at the Shiloh Inn, downtown Salt Lake City. We've had a number of people who have requested to participate in that. If you're one of them, get prepared, and we also invite you to come down and witness that. That's going to be a Friday, Shiloh Inn, January 23rd. Well, I want to welcome you to what I believe is perhaps one of the most important shows we've done, maybe one of the most important shows we will do. It's a program that gets to the heart of the matter, so to speak, a presentation that reveals our truest hearts in the ministry, our intentions. A show I hope will not lack in substance or fact, but hopefully will help you in your Christian walk and in your search for peace in your lives. So, with that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we love you and need you uh, more than we realize. So we pray that you'll be with us now. Open up um, the eyes and ears of those people who are searching. Help me to deliver a message you want me to deliver. Bless our audience uh, that's live and our audience at home and uh, our staff who dedicate their time volunteering uh, to help the show get off the ground. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Religion is religion is religion and people are people. And they will always be just people. Religion will always seek for itself. It will always do what is necessary for its own survival and growth. And it will always make demands on people as a means to elevate its own existence. Some religion is very, very good. Some religion has been very, very bad. To me, and if you've watched our show for any amount of time, you know that our ministry, that to our ministry, what religion you choose is not the primary issue with us. Sure, the religionists will say otherwise, and there does seem to be some religious choices out there that are much better than others. But in the end, in the end, We personally don't care, necessarily, how people choose to exercise their religious muscles. There is a far more pressing and important question each of us need to have answered than what church we attend. And then there are people. In Jean-Paul Sartre, French existentialist philosopher, he wrote a play called No Exit. And in that play, he wrote a line that said where that one of the characters came to a realization that says people are hell if you find yourself looking for a religion that will pacify and please you through its people you might as well forget it they will always end up disappointing you in one way or another over the course of our ministry I've watched many people kind of stagger in uh, from the hurricane of being involved with different religious groups, and have been so disappointed at the way they've been treated by people. And they come looking for a new hope, a new place to find a home where the people are going to meet their expectation of perfection. And I'm strongly inclined to take them aside when I see them and and warn them that they're not going to find it. Uh, people are people no matter where you go it usually doesn't take long before these poor and misguided souls just sort of disappear and they ramble out towards the silhouette of another hopeful promise hoping people will be more kind, more loving more accepting of them in a new church and in a new place in two days we're going to celebrate the birth of mighty God his birth Life, death, and resurrection accomplished two absolutely incomprehensible things relative to religion and people. For he showed us that religion can go very, very bad, and he showed us that people don't save, but that people need saving. About 760 years ago, before the birth of Jesus, who was a real, living, breathing person, the prophet Isaiah described him perfectly, saying, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Isaiah reveals two general truths about Jesus here. He tells us that he was born, he tells us that he was a child. This general truth tells us that Jesus was a man, he was a human being. And then he tells us that even though he was born and that he was a child, he was also God. Mighty God, the Eternal Father even. Does your religion teach you that Jesus is wonderful? The Hebrew word for wonderful here is Pela. And its best application is tied to the word miracle. Did you know that? When he says wonderful, it's almost like saying miracle. Ask yourself, is Jesus truly a miracle in your life? Is he a miracle in your heart? Can you truly state that's what he is to you? Does your religion teach you that he is a counselor with a capital C, counselor? That you should seek him for your counsel and not men all gussied up in starched shirts and robes and frocks and uniforms. The Hebrew word for counselor means advisor, someone who is able to deliberate or resolve issues, someone we consult who guides us and who gives us purpose. Does your religion teach you to make Jesus your counselor or does it tell you that you need them to counsel you in his place? Does your faith teach you that Jesus is the mighty God? The uncreated creator, the one who has been from everlasting to everlasting? Or does your religion go contrary to what Isaiah wrote and demean the statue of Jesus and relegate him to something less, to being a good man or just a prophet or an elder brother? Does your faith teach you that he is the everlasting father? When you go to bed tonight, just give yourself a challenge if your religion doesn't and chew on that for a minute. How is Jesus the everlasting father? You have questions on that, email me and we'll talk about it. Finally, if your faith embraces Jesus at all, it is almost certain that it would at least agree that he is the Prince of Peace. What does this mean? Many religions will try to paint Jesus as a model for peaceful living, as though if you follow his example, the results will be peace in your life. I'd like to take a moment and explain to you how the Bible portrays him as the Prince of Peace. And discuss this piece that he actually offers. The whole body of the Mosaic legislation was sort of summarized up and called the law. The law became the theocratic rules by which the children of Israel lived their lives and operated. Under the law the do's and the don'ts, the musts and the must-nots were of a primary concern to the children of Israel. God judged, awarded, and condemned people based on their obedience or their disobedience to the law. And His people who lived under the law did the same thing to each other. Men and women back then would observe each other, summarize, and judge their neighbors according to obedience or their failure to obey God's rules. Did Belua travel too far on the Sabbath, they might ask? I think she did. And always, always checking to see what they're doing in their lives. Did Shamal eat something unclean? I think he did. Always a suspicion. Always a judgment living under the law. Did Josh dress properly? Did he speak correct words? Did he pay the exact amount to the temple? Did, did, did. Always watching out. Not only did living under the law bring criticism and judgment, it also produced pride and arrogance in the hearts of the people who lived under it. Why, I have never stolen, I have never committed murder, I have never committed adultery in all my life. Why, I am a- if I am able to obey the Sabbath day, you should be able to obey the Sabbath day too, might be some things that people would say as they lived under the law. The law was a means of judging the actions of others according to God's holiness and God's righteousness. The law was perfect because it was from God, but it was a very, very tough way to live. Even more importantly, it was impossible to live. You could not do it. Nobody could live the law except for one. We call him Jesus. When Jesus came born of a woman, meaning he was a man, but in whom dwelled the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's a biblical scripture in whom dwelled the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's in Colossians 2:9. He lived this law perfectly, to perfection. In doing so, he fulfilled the demands of the law entirely. So he not only saved us from our sins and the penalty of our sins, he saved us from the demands of trying to keep the law through our own strength and abilities. When they crucified him, the law and all the requirements of it were nailed to the cross. Paul wrote in Colossians 2.10 that we, quote, are complete in him, who is the head of all principalities and powers. Do you understand what this means? Does your religion or your respective faith teach you this? That by faith we are complete in him? Paul goes on to say, listen to this, quote, and you, me and you, Being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that's talking about the law, which was contrary to us, and taking it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. These passages clearly state that Jesus came and by his obedience, not ours, By his, he overcame the demands of the law in its entirety and they were nailed to the cross with him. So how are we justified now? How are we righteous? How are we sanctified before God today and made acceptable to him? Where obedience to the law was God's way prior to the birth of the Messiah, Jesus provided what is called in the scriptures an even better way actually calls Jesus' new covenant, the work he did, the even better way. And it's called faith. It's called grace. The writer of Hebrews makes it very clear how we please God today since Jesus came. Quote, But without faith, it is impossible. It's impossible to please him. Jesus is the Prince of Peace Because Jesus fulfilled, then took away all of the elements that rob us of personal peace, including sin, guilt, death, eternal death, and the law. Because he removed all that from us, we can have peace in him. Jesus is the prince of peace because he took away all the things that rob us of peace, namely sin, guilt, death, and the law. Because of Jesus, did you know that we are should be, we should be dead to the law. That's how Paul describes it. Does your religion teach you this? Does it reinforce to you this natural inclination we all have to embrace law when we lack in faith? I say your natural selves because it, is, because it is natural for men and women when they really want to know and they really want to seek God to do so through their own righteousness and through their own efforts, their own obedience. It's natural, natural for men and women to believe that God is just overjoyed with them when they are able by their own strength and their own determination to overcome things. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. You cannot do anything that will impress God, that will make Him love you more, that will make, you love, make Him love you less, anything at all. In fact, let me put it to you another way. So to fully bring the point home, since Jesus came and fulfilled all the demands of the law through His flesh, and He also paid for all sin through the shedding of His blood, Several things need to be considered to the biblical Christian. First, we need to see that our sins have been paid for past, present, and future, wiped away clean over 2,000 years ago. Therefore, as Christians, this is, might scare some of you, sin is no longer our enemy. Sin is not the thing we focus on. If sin has been wiped away, we do not focus on sin. Sin. How could sin be our enemy if it was accounted for by the God we believe in and paid for? What is the enemy that we as Christians face? What is the force that seeks to take our unconditional love away from us and make it conditional? What is the force that seeks to kill our long suffering that we should have for others? What is the force that seeks to neutralize the descriptions that Jesus gave to us on how we should live? the law. Legalisms. The biggest enemy to the true Christian walk is the law. It's not sin. It's the law. Why? Because when it's reintroduced into your life with your faith, we lose footing on the rock called Jesus Christ and we become opposite of what He has called us to be. Let me explain this. In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus laid out the way he wants his followers to be. He would say, you have heard it said, but I say, you have heard it said, but I say. For instance, Matthew 5, 21, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry or calls names shall be in danger of hellfire. Matthew 5.27, he says, Ye have heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh upon a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery with her already. Matthew 5.23, ye have heard it said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you, and persecute you. How is this possible? If living the law was an impossibility, and Jesus turns the heat up and says, you've heard it said this, and no one could follow that, and I'm telling you to do this, how is that possible in the human experience? It's not. Without Jesus. Only by faith in him can we overcome our natural selves. Only through his grace, only through him and his power, not our own. And what is the most certain way to fail at what Jesus commanded us to do? To re-embrace the law in our lives. Grace and law are like fire and ice. They're like cats and dogs. They're like oil and water. They are not compatible. They cannot coexist. They either live or we either live by and under the idea that we can please God by the law and our obedience to it, or we live by grace. Anytime a person or a religion seeks to mix faith and grace and the law, you have effectively bastardized the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 3.20, therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified In his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. What does this mean? By the law is the knowledge of sin. It means anytime you invoke elements of the law into your life, your ability to follow Jesus as he told us to follow him is reduced. It's not enhanced. For example, If Jesus says, turn the other other cheek, that's what he says. Let's turn the other cheek. And let's say that you follow that and you turn the other cheek and you turn the other cheek and you're acting in faith and you're living by that. And then let's say you re-embrace the idea of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. That brings the law back in. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. But you remember the law says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Pretty soon you justify retaliation. You forget what Jesus said and you follow the law again. It is the enemy to the Christian walk. You will lose your strength and faith the more you embrace the law. But our natural inclination is to say, I got to embrace this law to make God happy with me. God will be happy with you when you please him by your faith, trusting in his son to help you turn the other cheek and to definitely not take an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. When I accept the fact that I am unable to obey God's law, and that you and everyone else also fails in their ability to keep God's law, and that we are all only saved by the fact of grace, then I am able to live as Jesus taught me to live, Then I can look at someone, not through the eyes of law, but through the eyes of grace. Then I can love my enemy. Then I can love those people who persecute me or despitefully use me or do things I don't agree with. As soon as I introduce law into my view, as soon as I bring the law there, I see them in a different light. And I judge them and I condemn them and I have impatience with them. And I do the things that make me turn from what he taught me to be. Only when I am able to love as Jesus taught me to love, it comes by following him through grace. This is when we experience the peace that the Prince of Peace has given us. This is when you will see yourself as truly living like Jesus commanded you to live because you're able to put away the things that cause us to to fail and we're able to love with the grace that he wants us to love with. Does your religion present you with a different package? Does it tell you that if you're going to please God, you must do this and you must do that? If it does, what it places in your heart is the inability. Listen to this. What it places in your heart is the inability to embrace the teachings of Jesus. The law, every single aspect of it, must be refused from your heart and the lives of, uh, of others around you and replaced with God's better way, his grace, and his totally free and liberating love. Remember Paul said in Galatians 2.19, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. Every time you embrace the law, you're living unto yourself. I can do this. I can do it. Every time you live unto God, you are putting that behind you and saying, God can do it. God can do it. And that is the miraculous change that the Christians talk about when they give their life or they receive the Lord and He takes over and things start falling into place, at least in their relationship with Him. How can you forgive others if we believe that they have not earned your forgiveness? Such thinking comes by the law. Where grace cries, we must forgive all, the law suggests that some are not worthy of our forgiveness. Where grace says we have no right to get angry with anyone for anything, the law tells us that we are justified in our anger. Justified in feeling superior. Justified in positions and advancements. This is just bullshit-talking mushrooms. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get some legalists calling, you shouldn't say those things. The grace of God lays bare our personal, sinful, failing ways and causes us to scream, praise Jesus, praise Jesus for saving me from myself. The law causes us to scream, you're not worthy, either in the mirror or to your neighbor. Within all the realms of Christianity, Satan seeks for us to re-embrace the law. For when this is accomplished, we diminish God's effectiveness in our lives and add our twisted addition to what he finished on the cross. And it places us under a burden that Peter said, which neither we nor our fathers could bear, speaking of the law. Again, as true believing Christians, our enemy is not sin. All sin was erased over 2,000 years ago by him who came and was worthy to take it on and pay for it for us. As grace-filled followers of Jesus, the enemy of love for others and our effectiveness as his true servants is the law. James said if you break the least commandment of the law, just one of them, you are guilty of breaking the whole thing. That's how how emphatic the apostles were about having the law in your life guiding you over the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 973-TV20. I'd like to impose something tonight. We really want callers who have not had an opportunity to get through, first-time callers only. I'll sit here and talk like a blithering idiot instead of take calls from blithering idiots. No, uh, so please don't, and you don't need to, you don't need to uh, babble on about the good job I do or how much you uh, love it or whatever. Have a question, have a point, have a comment, have a criticism, anything's open, but please, we love LDS callers, we want first time callers. If you've called in the past eight months, please don't call us tonight. And uh, let's open it up to people who have some other things that they haven't been able to get through and say. So we'll come back after the break, finish up the topic, and go to the phones. That was a quick commercial. It must have been my whole life story. (laughs) Uh, All right. Listen, uh, I like to present a quick comparison between the general attitude of those people who live under the law, and might be good believing people, and people who live under grace. When the question is asked, how do you see yourself? People under the law say, well, I'm a saved Christian, and I'm now able to keep the law because I've been saved. Or they say, the law helps me prove my faith. A... Christian living under grace says, I know I have been born again, saved by grace, but I will still fail at keeping the law because of my outer man. I live by the Spirit, not by the letter, and let the Spirit change me through His means and not my own. Let me give you an example. Let's say that I have a problem with lust. So I say, oh, I have this problem with lust. Well, I live by the beach, I'm not gonna go to the beach because that's where girls wear swimsuits. So I've, I've taken that on, okay? I'm not gonna ever do this, so I take this on. And I start to get a little better in my lust because I've, I've cut these things out and I've been doing better and better. All I've done is turn to myself in my own ways and the lust is just really set in a, in a back room until opportunity pre- presents itself and I find myself too weak to overcome it and I'm, I'm stuck. But if I turn to God, and I say, God, I'm having trouble with this lust, help me, teach me, and let him guide me and not me impose the rules, then when I overcome it, I have overcome it. And I have actually become stronger in it and I'm able to help people who might have the same issues. Doesn't mean I won't use safeguards that God leads me to use, but you don't take it upon yourself to just wince down and say, okay, no more, no more. When you do that, you're, you're fighting under a law versus the spirit of the law and the Lord. When we ask the question, how do I view the law? Those who live under it say, it's a set of must-dos for myself and others. To fulfill and obey and to please and be acceptable for God, those who live under grace say, God's law is perfect and I am not. As I allow him to work through me through his spirit, I will actually become closer to keeping his law than if I try to do it on my own. You know, Paul said, I do so much more work now that I know the Lord Jesus Christ than I ever did as, a, as a, uh, a Pharisee. And he was one of the best of the best. And that's what happens when you embrace the Spirit. When we ask ourselves, what's the key to our spiritual growth? People under the law say, self-discipline. I, I'm going to discipline myself. And that's the way you progress up these ladders of spiritual growth. Romans 7, 18 says that's no way. It says, our efforts are futile. Paul wrote, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, in my body, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So he's saying whenever you turn to yourself as the answers, you're going to find yourself incapable. When we ask ourselves what does scripture mean, legalists have a real problem because they say, I can't reconcile the epistles of Paul with the gospels. Jesus said, I want you doing this. Paul says, we're this. When you are under the uh, uh, grace, you understand the relationship. And I explain the relationship in the opening prologue. That's what it's about. It's that relationship of turning it over, knowing that the law doesn't do it. And in that, you become closer to Christ and his demands. When we ask ourselves, what's required of me? People under the law says, I have a duty and I have a service and there are rules. And people under grace say, they ask themselves, am I identified with Jesus? Is he who I'm relying on? Does my love that I express to people, is that showing my progress in my walk of grace? It's the love you show that shows you are making progress in this area, not your ability to meet duty and expectation. When we ask ourselves, how do I react to failure? People under the law will say, I'm so surprised I was able to do that. I'm so surprised that came out of me that way. Or they rationalize it, or they minimize their failure, or they blame others for it, or there's uh, self-recrimination, or they make vows that they're going to do better next time. Okay? People under grace have a completely different response. They kind of expect it, almost with humor. I can't believe I'm such a loser. They say, I, "I, how bad can I get?" I actually laugh at myself at times. Just, I am so ridiculous. And and, you, but you're confident in God's acceptance of you, and you're confident that He is going to succor you and lift you up and propel you forward in His grace to be better than you ever could under the law. When we ask, "How do I handle my successes?" People under the law, they become proud, they become showy, they become intolerant of others. People under grace are humbly grateful. They retain empathy for others who fail where they are now having success and they see themselves in the right light. In the end, the eventual result of living under the law is external conformity, but increasing internal hypocrisy and defeat. It's growing despair and cynicism. It can be a self-righteous attitude that makes external comparisons and uh, it just leads to greater personal self-deception. Under grace, it's a subtle and gradual transformation of the self over sin. It's a renewing of your mind and heart, and it is evidenced by a growing love for all in all circumstances. At the end of the day, my friends, as we go to the phones, any religion that fails to teach its people that the law was nailed to the cross And that true Christian living comes solely by grace through Christ injects its followers with a deadly pathogen of an inconsistent and unreliable potion of bad faith. And there cannot be any type of mixture of this. It's got to be remembered any more than a person can be pregnant and not pregnant, breathing and not breathing, saved and not saved. Remember these words as we end Romans 11:6 And if by grace then it is no more of works otherwise grace is no more grace but if of works then it is no more grace otherwise work is no more work Amen. Merry Christmas to you we're going to go to Dave in Salt Lake City first time caller line 4 Dave you're on heart of the matter dave hi. you're on heart of the matter
2: hi can you hear me i can how you doing john
1: i'm doing well dave how are you
2: i'm doing all right excellent um i had a question for you John.
1: yes dave
2: um i was wondering about the apocalypse in this uh in these times you know in the winter and stuff i kind of tend to think about the end of times yeah and i was wondering what is the difference between the what the Mormons believe about the apocalypse and the everyday Christian
1: what he believes. Uh, well, everyday Christian's tough because there's all sorts of pre-trib, post-trib, amillennialists, preterists, and all these different terms for the way Christians view the end times. Uh-huh. Uh, LDS are uh, post-trib essentially. They uh, have been waiting and building the kingdom up for the return of Christ to rule and reign, and they believe that we uh, generally believe we are going to go through the tribulation, uh, and then Jesus will come, and then he will rule and reign on this earth. Pre-trib Christians who believe the church is going to be taken up, taken away, and then the tribulation will begin is a major difference from uh, the LDS. The LDS spend very, very little time Talking about uh, end time prophecy, um, you'll hear them say in their conferences, brethren and sisters, do not worry." I mean, the brethren in Salt Lake City have a 50-year planner in place. They've made comments like that just to say, "Just keep your nose to the grindstone. Don't worry about the end times and pass through. Let's prepare the kingdom of God."
2: Well, do they believe in uh, you know the, the four horsemen and the you know the the beasts and whatnot coming up from the ground and? you know, the final judgment and stuff, they still believe in all that
1: stuff? I think, they, I think they believe in it, and the reason I say I think is because it's taught so little that I don't have a much of a, a grip on really what their stance is. I know they don't discount it, and they'll say, yeah, there's probably going to be four horses, uh, uh, or there probably is going to you know, be an antichrist, but they just do not really teach or talk about it at all. What
2: do you think? About that stuff, Sean. Do you think there's an antichrist out there somewhere?
1: Well, it's a good question. Some people spend a lot of time looking for the antichrist, and I just try to spend my time looking for Jesus Christ. Oh, I hear that. If if he's if he's out there, and I'm sure he is somewhere, uh, maybe not born or maybe born, I don't know. Uh, but if he is, uh, I just put my faith in God all the way through for anything that happens, and if we happen to be post-trib instead of pre-trib, like I embrace it, then I'm ready for that. I'm ready to go through whatever God is gonna give to us. That's kind of my take on it.
2: Well, you think you think Jesus could take him? You think Jesus could take the Antichrist? I think I think he's more powerful.
1: Oh, and you just segued into another, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's gonna have any trouble at all. And thanks so much for the call, Dave. We're going to Quincy in Salt Lake City. Quincy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how's it going? I'm doing well, Quincy. How are you?
0: Oh, I'm doing great tonight, Sean. Um, hey, uh, if you don't mind real quick, I'd like to uh, give a shout-out to my friend Darrell. He's currently serving a mission in Florida, and he's been watching your show every week for the past six months. So Awesome. Yeah, I'd like to uh, wish him a Merry Christmas and remind him to keep strong.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. Very Keep strong in what?
0: Just, you know... Just uh keeping in there, you know.
1: In the mission or in watching no, our show? In
0: in watching your show.
1: Oh good. Good good you know, good it's, good it's save there. Fun, you
0: know?
1: So um, what's happening? Do you have a comment or a question? Yeah,
0: yeah, I do have a question for you, Sean. Um
1: recently, uses my name. Why does everyone use my name? Over uh, and over.
0: Sorry, Sean, you just your name has a good ring to it. Alright. Okay, anyway, um I recently jumped ship about a year ago and um One of the things I always kind of had a problem with was uh, evolution in the church. I've I've always kind of felt like I believe in the scientific uh, theory for evolution. Yeah. And now that I'm out of the church, I'm kind of wondering, just like what is my relationship with God, like is that more uh, my belief in evolution defined by religion, by my affiliation to a religion, or my belief in my relationship to the Lord?
1: I think it all comes down to your view of the Bible, uh, Quincy. And uh, I read what the Bible teaches, and I believe it. Now, how God operated within that creation, I don't. it's not a hill that I'll die on. I believe the Bible. And if God operated in some ways that are beyond me or some other ways, fine. But I, I believe what the Bible says. So that is my answer to uh, evolution or uh, creationism. I believe the Bible.
0: Okay, well, I mean... It's just, because I feel like I have a relationship with the Lord, but just sometimes, like, things with the uh, Bible, I'm not too sure about. It. I mean, is that, is that wrong? Like, is that bad?
3: Well,
1: Should I
0: reevaluate my... Uh...
1: I, I would suggest a reevaluation. How can, you, how can you truly know the Lord if you don't know his word? And uh, unless you want to go by feelings and believe as, as you sit there on the couch, not, not you or anybody sits there on the couch and says, you know, I believe in the Lord. I believe there's a God that's great. And they'd never seek what he has for them in his word. It's inconsistent. His word is how you really get your mind renewed and how you're able to take the things that you have been given your whole life and remove them so that you can think clearly and know him better. So prayer is great. Fasting's good and all the, and faith is excellent. But his word has been given to you as a gift at the sacrifice of many, many people. And God gave that word and it's inspired. You read it and it helps you. So I would say they are really, really tied together.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've been, doing, I've been trying to figure out the answer for a while. I'm just ever since I left the Mormon church, I've been kind of, you know, a little just uh, cautious. Are you going to church? So maybe I just need to do some thinking.
1: All right. Uh, are you ever going to church, Quincy?
0: Have I been? Yeah. Um, no, not not very much recently, no.
1: Well, find a good one. You're in Salt Lake. Come up and uh, join us at University of Utah. We're just teaching the Bible.
0: Okay, uh, Sean, maybe I will.
1: All right, take care, Quincy. You too. Bye-bye. We're going to Sherm and Orem on line three. Sherm, you're on Heart of the Matter.
4: Uh, yo, what's up, Sean? What
1: what's up, Sherm?
4: Sherm? Uh... I just wanted to apologize. You were gonna put me on TV earlier, and I accidentally hung up. So. Oh, that's okay. I'd, I'd like to give you my apologies, Sean.
1: I accept your apology, Sherman. What's
4: happening? Uh, dog. I had a question for you. Okay. Uh. So I heard from my Mormon friend that uh, some just stuck his face in a hat and he transcribed that into the Book of Warmth. Yeah? And, like, they made it so these uh, rocks and stuff, they were never seen by other people, you know what I'm saying? I do. Well, I didn't know if I got that entire story straight or not.
1: You, You got it established right, Sherm. I'm sorry? You have it established correctly.
4: Oh, that's all there is to it, man?
1: Yeah, he he put his face in a hat. He uh, dictated a book. They called it the Book of Mormon. And uh, and uh, people believe it. I mean, that, in a nutshell, that's really what it is. Man, that's
4: the most I ever heard of. <laughs>
1: you can't say retarded shiitake mushrooms on the show, Sherm.
4: Oh, I'm sorry. I...
1: Hey, man, appreciate the call.
0: Yo, stay up, John. Take
1: care. Bye-bye. We're going to Raymond, uh, line four. Raymond, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Musty Clan. Hello, Raymond. Whoa. You know, every time we try to do this right, we, uh, we're getting, it's getting worse. I don't know what to do. Uh, so the operators are going through calls. Uh, if you have a call, call in. We have a couple lines actually open uh, if you have a question or a comment. Uh, and I'm going to read a couple emails that I've prepared. Hi, Sean. I'm a former Mormon, now a firm believer in Christ. Part of my testimony of coming to Christ actually has to do a lot with music. In all honesty, I believe God can work through any style of music and that no sound of music should be condemned just because of the way it's sung or screamed or tone of the guitar or how heavy it is. I believe you need to look at the message of the heart of the music before judging it by sound alone. Uh, He added that he's currently into an awesome Christian death metal band called Impending Doom. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he writes, listen though We're talking about the law And talking about what it does to you I had to grow up with a lot of judgment From my LDS father who condemned Any music, any music With his own screaming no matter the message He used to go through my CDs And scratch them up And he would call it devil screaming uh, In spite of all that though It only made me love Harder music more you know and that's what the law does it brings out the rebellion let me give you an example don't think of the eiffel tower what do you do so when you give those type of didactic commands to people it automatically puts us into rebellion and this is what uh, Mike is saying here. And Mike, I agree with you. He wrote this in response to people calling and criticizing the rock t-shirts, the punk t-shirts that I wear. And uh, he says, man, don't worry about it. It's how you can reach out to people who are into that genre. Uh, got a question from uh, someone. It's na- actually, his name's John Doe. I've been watching your show on YouTube lately, and I have one question. What do you believe in? What are we supposed to do to make it to heaven What does it mean to have faith in Christ? I hear so many answers to all this. What do you think it means? And uh, I wrote back. Maybe I could start with what I don't believe in. I don't believe religion can save anyone. I don't believe there is any man on earth who is needed to aid to, add to, or ensure my salvation. I don't believe there is a sin I can commit that can keep me from God but one. I don't believe in a hierarchy of sin. I don't believe God sends people to hell who have never heard the message of his son. I don't believe that there is a single way to live or think or vote. Uh, that is required or acceptable to God. I do believe in living life abundantly as a sign of my gratitude for it. I do believe in children serving others in the Bible. I do believe there is only one single way to God, faith in His Son. I do believe that God is all good things, all good holy things. I do believe our works and efforts and appearances are meaningless to Him in the sense of self-promotion. I do believe in repentance, I do believe in truth, and I do believe in love, that love is the answer to all things, all things, that love is not void of truth, love gives, love endures, love overcomes all. Finally, I believe that the more we embody his love and the more we we illustrate what he means to us, this is faith in Jesus Christ, pure, non-religious, open, forgiving, truth-seeking, hard-to-bear at times, love. This love is not defined by the world and its parameters and implication. It's not evidenced in decorum necessarily, but it is fully manifested in how Jesus actually lived and how he said things by what he did, by whom he responded to, and in a sense, in what bothered and annoyed him. That's some of the things that I believe in, and I hope that helps encapsulate it. We're going to Ken in Ogden, first time caller. Ken, you're on Heart of the Matter.
0: spiritual body uh, when he said uh, don't touch me.
1: I think he was in his resurrected body and he hadn't yet ascended to the Father which was in heaven. I think the human touch, remember when the woman uh, who had the issue of blood came through the crowd and touched him and he said I feel virtue has gone out of me. I think that the human touch would have defiled him. Uh, And so he said, touch me not, I have not yet ascended to my Father which is in heaven. And yet later, when he returned, after ascending to his Father, then he came and they touched the wounds in his hands and feet. And I think that, uh, in the side, I think that's what it's talking about, Don.
0: Uh, Name is Ken, but thanks a lot, Sean.
1: You're welcome, Ken, I'm sorry. Sorry, okay, bye. All right, we're going to Amelia on line one. Amelia, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh,
3: Sean, um, you'll have to forgive me for this, please, but listen to this. Listen, I I have a question, okay, but listen know, yeah. to this.
1: All right. I swear.
3: Oh, holy night from Renee Fleming. You're outclassed. <laughs> With her. are you still there? Yeah. Okay. I, oh, oh, holy night! Oh, night divine! I I watch you fairly regularly, but tonight I I flipped the channel and I've been flipping back and forth and I just
1: Amelia, you know,
3: this woman is so wonderful. Um, can Amelia? I ask a question?
1: Yeah, you got to make your question quick.
3: Okay. I'm I have been wondering for a long time. I caught some of what you said about Paul. I have been wondering for a long time. It, if you make any differentiation between the words of Jesus Christ and the words of Paul.
1: No, I think they're all, they're all from Jesus came from the source, and Paul, it came through man, but it came from the source too.
3: Okay, I think that's a huge mistake. Yeah. Thank you for your dialoguing with, uh, you know, Mormon and evangelical, you're doing a real service.
1: Thank you. But I think
3: it's a mistake to confuse the words of Jesus with the words of his apostles.
1: Oh, well, I, I don't believe they were the words of his apostles. I believe they were the words of God speaking through them. Otherwise, I wouldn't trust the Bible at all except for the red letters.
3: Yeah, that's about where I'm at right now. I mean, well, good luck we with that, baby. Words of wisdom from other people, but yeah,
1: I don't think so. I believe in the inspired word of God. All right, we're going to move on, okay, Doris. Okay, thanks. In... thanks
3: for letting me say that.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for the music sound bite. <laughs> See, ya, Doris in Salt Lake City. Doris, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, Sean. Hi, Doris. Um,
3: Sean, um, how can you turn your other cheek to terrorists? Do you even think Jesus
1: could do that? How can you turn the other cheek? Yeah. Uh, Well, Jesus did do it, and the only way that I... let me tell you, you're talking to the right guy. Because I was taught when I was a young kid that if someone even looks like they're going to punch you, you take them out as Mm -hmm. best you can. Mm -hmm. And if someone punches you, my mom told me, you hit them back twice as hard. Mm -hmm. And she was a good LDS woman. Right so I was taught to do that so but you know what I have learned that when I am struck either, either emotionally or physically that the best thing to do is turn the other cheek and sometimes I am empowered by his Holy Spirit to do that <sighs> so the only way really to truly do it is to have the spirit inviting within you and that can only occur through rebirth
3: Through rebirth yeah uh, okay, that, goes, that takes me to my next question. Okay, If I quit the LDS church, do I need to get baptized
1: again? Uh, you know what? Baptism is something that you want the Lord to lead you to do. And you don't want to do it because you've left the Mormon church and you're joining another church or you think you're, you're supposed to so you're pleasing Him. You want the Spirit of God to lead you and it will. So I'm not going to give you a, an answer of yes, you should, and yes, you shouldn't. You could, you could leave the Mormon church and get hit by a, a car, Doris, and the Lord's going to love you and take you. I believe in baptism when it's from the heart, and so I would suggest that if you came to me as a pastor and said, I really am wondering about baptism, I would teach you about it and t- help you understand why it would be a good thing, but uh, dogmatically, I would not say yes. Can I ask just
3: one more short question?
1: You sure can.
3: Does our short life uh, here on earth determine our place in eternity
1: uh... yes yes it absolutely doesn't seem fair. pardon me it
3: doesn't seem fair
1: <laughs> you know what um, the life you've been given is such a fair thing i mean you were given a life i don't know what your life consists of but life in and of itself is a fair thing we we should be honoring god that we even have been given a chance for life and so I understand your perspective, but quite frankly, when you have the perspective of, dear God, thank you for all things and you're you're grateful for it, it changes that perspective. That's not fair. I only had 70 years to decide whether I was going to follow him or not. I think your perspective will change as you maybe contemplate on that a little bit more, but I understand your point. Okay, Sean, thanks a lot. All right, Doris, God bless. Thanks, bye. Bye Bye-bye. We're going to Eli on line four. Eli, you're on Heart of the Matter.
5: Hey John, how are you today?
1: Doing well, Eli. How are you?
5: I'm well. To answer that lady's question, would Christ love the terrorist? Uh, Christ, when he was on the cross, said, "Forgive them for not for forgive them for not what they do." Yeah. You know, so forgiveness is Christ forgave those who killed him.
1: Yeah.
5: You know, I mean, so forgiveness is it's the love. You know, it's all about the grace. It's a it's a gift and it's a, it's love. Amen. Um, I, I'm glad that you you brought up the subject of uh, the the works doctrine versus the. Uh, Grace doctrine that's yeah. wonderful that's wonderful because uh you know I have this struggle with people that always you know you have to live by the law you have to live by the law and I said, but by the grace of God I walk yeah you know and and you know the the hardest thing is is it's our own human nature to sit here and say I'm in control I'm in control I'm in control and it's very hard to sit here and say God you're driving this plane, not me yeah you know,
3: it's hard to do that.
1: And the more you, and the more Eli, we're able to turn it over to him, the more peace and joy and that we have. And it seems like it would be counter, but oh, every time I try to grip something stronger, it falls apart.
5: Oh yeah, I've had I've had some real difficult times in my life, and each time, I tell God, just take it from me, and let it go. And you know what? Things work out. It's amazing.
1: Amen. Appreciate your call, Eli. Thanks, Sean. Okay. God bless you. We're going to Don and Ogden on line two. Don, you're on heart of the matter.
0: Hey, Sean, I was wondering why you're uh, bleeping over the musty clam these days. That goes way back.
1: How come I'm what? Do you know what Don? Uh, he was on the line before we went to the calls. He's been on the uh, lo- waiting on the line for about thirty-five minutes, and I just said, "Don't go to this guy." I skipped him over. He's been on line two for the whole time. Um, Don, knock it off. Okay. Uh, Matthew wrote us and said a little food for thought. Recently, you've gotten a lot of criticism about uh, polygamy, and uh, I suggest you open up your Bible and read it. And then he went and talked about five or six different people who uh, were in the Bible who were good men who had multiple wives, or at least a second wife, if not more. And he then wrote, just thought I'd clear that up for you. This is Matthew. All right, Matt, a couple things really quickly. God didn't originate these unions in any case. Abraham, Zipporah, uh, Abja, Hagar, Keturah, none of them did God originate the idea of plural wives or polygamy, never. It was always a man or a woman's idea to bring it in and to try to alter God's original plan, all right? Secondly, what is the model that we go for God's plan for marriage, Matt? We go to the Garden of Eden, and we look at Adam and Eve, and he didn't. it wasn't Adam and Eve's, it, was, it wasn't two ribs, it was Adam and Eve, and that's how it was set up. And finally, God has an expressed will, Matt, and He has a permissive will. And He is not a dogmatic despot in all cases of the Old Testament, and many times He let them do all kinds of things that led to their destruction. He lets us screw up, obviously. And so he, he did that, Matthew. So you really didn't clear up anything. In your email, you wrote that you don't ever, ever, ever let critics shake your testimony. And I think all your email did was prove that you live by that. So uh hope that helps. Um, finally, we got a, uh email from Jerry M., who says he doesn't get it why people are in the LDS... Uh, community are more afraid of their family, their community, their jobs, than their salvation. And I just want you to know, Jerry, that being in this system is very tough. It's very tough to break from. And it seems very obvious when you understand who Jesus is, I mean, what to give up would be nothing. But when you really don't understand it yet, it's very difficult. So we've got to have a heart for them, pray for them, pray for the community, and uh, love them with all of our heart and bring them to the Lord. So with that, we're going to come back next week. Final show of 2008. We'll see you here on Heart of the Matter.